there, I'm Karen Sander. You are listening to Aging Fearlessly, a program for the over 50s, those uniquely wonderful baby boomers. My aim is to educate, motivate and inspire you to embrace the exciting journey of life for decades to come. So stay tuned to meet a variety of guests who will share their stories and passions to help us gain insight into the ways to live a happier, healthier life. Welcome everybody to the Aging Fearlessly show. This is Karen Sander. I recently met Penny Holbrook and she sent me some notes and I'm going to read them to you. They label my belongings as deceased. Penny was diagnosed as clinically dead when her partner found her in her motel room on a Monday night at French's Forest just six years ago. At the age of 47, she made a conscious decision to take her own life. A voice in her head had convinced her that she was not good enough. The voice had won the constant battle. It was considered a miracle by ICU doctors that she had survived. Now, six years later, Penny opens up about the heartbreaking events that led up to her decision, culminating in how she made the ultimate comeback. Waking up in the ICU from five days in a coma, Penny remembers crying in her hospital bed, nurses hurriedly trying to remove her ventilator and tubes, which are causing the 47-year-old to choke. I thought that I'd have failed at being a mother, a grandmother, a wife, an ex-wife and a partner, so I slipped quietly back to sleep. Today, Penny talks about her lived experience and is an advocate for wellness. Having been given a second chance to live again, she shares her story so that others don't make the same mistake that she almost made. Her story of shared values is powerful, insightful and inspirational, a story that we shall all need to listen to, to truly comprehend that there's always a brighter tomorrow. Today, Penny is a different woman and I'd like to welcome her as my guest on Aging Fearlessly. Welcome, Penny. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. It is fabulous to have you. I know we've been talking for the last few weeks, and sometimes it's just getting that right moment to share an hour to capture a story. So I'm very, very grateful. Thank you, Karen. So, so Penny, I've got a few questions. So let's just start at, what was your childhood like? Wow. Um, my childhood, I felt like my childhood was parentless, basically. Um, my mum had bipolar. Back then it was called manic depressive. Um, so I spent a lot of time um, in psychiatric um, hospitals, sitting in corridors or sitting in waiting rooms while she was, you know, visiting a psychiatrist. Um my father was, you know, he was always at work. So um, I also had a sister who was very, very sick, and she was constantly um, being operated on as well. So as I said, I spent a lot of my childhood in hospitals, just, you know, waiting for outcomes or waiting to see my mum. Our neighbour became my pseudo-grandmother because I didn't have any grandparents. She basically did a lot of my bringing up. Mm -hmm. So before and after school, I would be in with her 
And, you know, even in the evenings, you know, my mum would sort of just go to bed. And as my sister got a bit older, she sort of started going out. So I really didn't have a lot of company. So, you know, my neighbour, who was my, as I said, my nana, did that and cared for me in lots of different ways where, unfortunately, my mother being so sick with her bipolar, she just wasn't able to give me or provide for me the love that a little girl needed. She had lost another baby in between my older sister and I, and it just became, motherhood was just too difficult for her. I'm going to sort of have a, a stab at the year that you're, the year or the decade that you're talking about, the 1960s, 70s? 1970s, yep. The 1970s. Mm. Bipolar or manic depression then, there wasn't a lot of treatment, especially modern um, medicines weren't able to treat this disorder very effectively, mm. correct? Correct. And she had uh, shock treatment, which, you know, back then in the in the 70s, I think she had that when I was about two. So we're in probably about 1972. Shock treatment back then was just ghastly. And following that procedure, she was never the same. So that's what I'm saying. From the time I was two-ish, that's all I remember of her. I hate to sort of say that sort of saying sort of just off with the pixie. She just was not connected with life. I remember a lot of bad publicity in my teens, which was during the 70s, about shock treatment and how it was just such a shocking treatment to go through. The recovery period was slow, if at all. Mm. Mm. And in my mum's case, it, was the, it wasn't at all. She just wasn't there. It wasn't the ideal childhood. Thank goodness for a neighbour who stepped Ooh. up to the plate. Yeah, she was just beautiful. Like I was even looking at some baby photos the other day and there she was. And I was just like, just these flashes of memories of just coming home from school and going to the, a particular tin to have, you know, a little bag of chippies and, you know, oh. a hot chocolate in the winter and things like that. Like I just look at the kindness that she had and that's what I tried to portray in my everyday life now is, is wellness and kindness. What happened in the lead-up to you making a decision of attempting to end your life? Hmm. They always say that, you know, things that really stress us are, you know, death, divorce, sale of a house, all of those things. Well, everything happened at once for me. You know, we had sold our house and... It was a sad time to be selling the house around the circumstances that there was. And... I had met a new partner, as had my ex-husband, and uh, so we both had new partners. But I just felt like, I, and I lived sort of with my partner in a rental for 10 weeks, and I really didn't have a lot of my possessions around me. Mm-hmm. And not being in a normal routine and having bipolar and OCD and PTSD and a self-harmer, it all just started to build up in that 10 weeks. That I wasn't living in my what was my own home or my own reality and you know there was some you know deception around a family member so I really felt that I'd failed in my mothering and we simply moved into um, our home here on the Friday and my partner was having an operation on the Monday and I dropped him off at the hospital and after a ridiculous argument downstairs of throwing keys across the bonnet of the car he, uh, he, you know, he kept saying, look, the hospital said don't bring anything with you. 
And I kept chucking the keys and saying, you know, because I thought he's not going to get it back in the house. I'm not going to be here. You know, I'm, yes. I'm going to be dead. Like I won't be here. In the end, he took the keys and, you know, he got out of the hospital. I said goodbye. And then, you know, we were, we were, you know, we were sort of, you know, not happy with each other. Then I knew that I had to sort of get to do, I knew that he'd be under anaesthetic for about six hours. So I knew I had about six hours up my sleeve to do what I intended to do. So, you know, I, I drove home and I, over a period of being on medication for a very long time, probably since I was about, so probably around, um, I think I was diagnosed in about 2002 with bipolar. So I'd been on medication for a long time, switching things. So unfortunately, they're, they're, I still had a lot of medication. And I literally came home and packed that up. Ridiculously, I chose um, a really beautiful dress to take with me. I used to, when I was working, I used to be a funeral director and I was also a mortician. So I didn't want anyone worrying about what, I would be placed in, like one, oh when they were dressing me in the mortuary. It's amazing how irrational you are, but you think rational things like, yeah. right, well, I've got my beautiful pink sparkly dress that the mortician can put me in and, and I want this in my hair or except or these shoes, you know, I packed the whole bag and like, even post that psychiatrist said to me, like, I cannot believe you even did that. Like you knew what happens in a mortuary but that didn't put you you know like I'm like nope it was all fine so I did that and then I got in the car and I sort of drove this it was my way that I used to go to my work and there was a hotel there on the left hand side of the road that just said accommodation and it was a really old rundown it's actually only got bulldozed last year mm-hmm. and uh, it's just an accommodation and I literally you know just drove in and Went and saw the gentleman at the counter and he said, oh, you know, bookings aren't till two o'clock. And this is about 20 past 10. And I was like, oh, dear. So I just sort of said, you know, I had a, a meeting, you know, with, with my parents. That's why I still had this address on my license. He said, if you could just give me 20 minutes. So he got the girl to do the room, one room and finish off and he gave me the room. So by sort of quarter to 11, I turned my phone off. My partner was at the time, and, and a good friend of his was a policeman. Um, I knew they'd do a triangulation on my phone, so I turned my phone off so it wouldn't bounce off a tower, and that was it. So I put myself in that hotel room with a really good bottle of parliamentary wine and a lot, a lot of pills. A trying time for you, and a lot happening, moving, partner issues, all sorts of things. It must have been very, very hard. Without any of the details, but how were you found and what happened when you woke up? Okay, probably about six hours, you know, seven hours after my partner had been operated on, the the nurses were ringing but not getting any result. And they kept saying to my partner, you know, she's not answering the phone. He kept ringing and he's sort of like, Pen, you know, where are you? You know, I'm ready to come home, etc. Of course, there was no answer. So he eventually got himself home from the hospital and then he started to ring my children and he, he said, have you spoken to mum today at all? And he rang my ex-husband and said, you know, have you spoken to her? No, started. So everyone sort of in, he just said that I had acted, been acting strangely that morning. So a few friends started to ring around. No, they hadn't seen me at all. And then he, he just started to, you know, the hours were going by and it was, getting, it was dark. So they, him and his, uh, his, and his mate went into, um, the local police station to, you know, register me as missing. And then they 
said that I hadn't been missing 12 hours so they couldn't do it, which is absolute rubbish. And I wish, uh, I really hope that if something comes out of this is that you could be missing an hour and you can, it can be reported because, yeah, so, you know, and even here as a police officer, it was just given the wrong information. So a few people were out looking for me. My ex-husband actually found my car in, a, in this, when I say dingy hotel. He was driving back home to his home after speaking with my partner and just sort of saying, look, you know, she's probably just, you know, having some time out, which I've done previously. You know, I've had mental health issues for a very long time. And he was heading home and there was just one last hotel on his way. And um, I just bought a new little car and he spotted it and he rang my partner back and he said, is this, you know, is this Penny's car? And, and he said, yes. So um, he and his friend headed up there and found my car and there was a tiny little crack in the curtains. The light, I had the lights on and he could see my handbag in there. So um, without further ado, they, they kicked the door in because it was like 11 o'clock at night. So they weren't going to wait for, you know, the manager of the hotel. And they they couldn't see me. They could see my possessions. Then they, when they walked into the bathroom, they could see that I was yeah face down on the on the bathroom floor. Not that I'd remembered. I'd got in the shower, and obviously the medications had taken and fully got into my system. I literally, obviously, you know, collapsed, fell out. I fell over the hob of the shower and smashed my face into the toilet bowl. I was there for approximately about 10 hours like that. And um, my, uh, my partner's a friend dragged me out. As I said, he had had an operation, so he couldn't lift me. So he dragged me out and then they rang triple O and started, you know, CPR on me. I'd written my suicide notes. I'd started my last one to my partner, but by that stage I'd got too groggy and nothing, nothing was written. So he sort of gathered those up because my son was on the way to the hotel. Like, he said, look, I've found your mum and she's suicided. We're, you know, we're not really sure what's happening with her. It's not good. Mm. So they put me into the back of the ambulance and my son hopped in for a few moments and just held my hand and told me he loved me. And, of course, then I was, you know, taken to Royal North Shore Hospital and all my children and other family, you know, friends and other um, police officers were there to support my partner. And they weren't saying anything to anyone. Um, they were asking questions. By this stage, they were putting me through, you know, every test, see what damage I'd done to myself physically. You know, obviously, I was ventilated by that stage. And then they put me in ICU and they sort of just said, look, we have no idea, We, you know, whether she will ever wake up. We, we can't tell you that. I, obviously, my face was damaged. My Leg, we didn't really find out till about a week, you know, later when I came out of the coma, it just started to swell up. So because I'd cut the circulation off to it for about 10 hours. Now, six years later, you know, there's some things now, you know, that I'm experiencing because of what I did six years ago, you know. Mm. So, so we were there. I think, you know, my partner came home, you know, in the early hours of the morning, just, they just sent him home just, just to sleep for a little bit, you know, and he was there you know, day and night as long as he could be. And, um, you know, the children were you know, trying to cope with that um, and work, etc. So it was, look, you know, for them, knowing that um, my mother had also suicided when I was 23, you know, they were just in shock to think that I had done the same thing. Yeah. And um, I realised years later that uh, my youngest daughter was also 23 when I attempted to take my life, which I 
hadn't oh. certainly it was, certainly wasn't calculated it just happened that way you know yeah. on about day five apparently my eyes flickered and my toes I wiggled my toes so they rang my partner and he came in I think he'd rung the children and they were there and I can remember you know as I said I can remember coughing because my body started to want to breathe on its own basically so they when you've got the ventilated tubes in they just tell you to cough so it they can drag all the tubes out. I can remember gagging on that and choking. And then I realised that I was still here on earth. And I can remember just like trying to get my surroundings of where I was. Then I looked to my right, my partner was there holding my hand. And in, in a pleasant term, I basically just said, you know, who the hell resuscitated me? And he was like, and that's in, that's in you know, without swearing. And he said, um, I did. And I, I just started crying because I'd written a do not resuscitate note and left it on the bed. I could sort of see down the end of the bed, you know, the kids were there. You know, I mumbled a few other things, but then fell, you know, back to sleep. As I said, yes, I'd come out of the coma and I'd started to breathe on my own, but there was still a lot of, of drugs that had to come out of my system. So I was sort of in and out of consciousness for the next probably day or two until I fully come round. You know, I, I wasn't happy about being there. I can remember trying to get out of bed and, you know, I had millions of tubes everywhere even, and, you know, it was for simple things like, I'm going to the bathroom. You know, they're like, no, you don't need to. There's no need for that. And I'm like, you can't hold me here. And they're like, you know, everyone's pushing me back down on the bed and they're saying, no, you're safe, you know, you're getting well here, you know, it's okay. I spent another couple of days in ICU and then they moved me onto a ward where I stayed for five weeks. My guest today in the studio with me, actually on Zoom with me, is Penny Holbrook. And we're talking about a true story when she tried to take her own life. Penny, what is PACER? So the PACER... It's part of education and training with the police force. So it actually stands for police, ambulance and clinical early response. So it's called the PACER project. And what it actually does is they have, through partnership with a spectrum support, like they've developed an online education package for frontline police officers to better equip themselves to deal with common behaviours, identification of the vulnerability, managing affected people with empathy, including when they need to be, you know, interviewed by police as part of an investigation process. The STOPA stands for Stop, Think, Observe, Plan, Act and Review. Uh So a psychologist goes out with their own uh, pace of vehicle and dependent upon the severity of the triple O call, they're actually able to sort of de-escalate the situation in real time, you know. Um, sometimes that's going to be done from a safe distance um, with effective communication to reduce, to like reduce the risk of um, injury to the individuals or to the police officers. But it's a, a program that really is working. And it's in, I think, in about 10 local area commands at the moment, but they do intend to stretch it into every command. So over a 12-month period when they first started it, which was May 2017 through to May 2018, around 1,000 people affected by the mental health problems were brought into St George Hospital, the emergency department via police. 
This clinical program is actually between St Vincent's Hospital Community Mental Health Service and the New South Wales Police Force. As I said in the beginning, it was Surrey Hills, King's Cross and Sydney City. It's now at Northern Beaches, which is fantastic. What actually happens is they evaluate. So since so in, this, in the time period that I was saying, December 27 to 2018, and 2018 to 2019, they found a 9% reduction in mental health presentations into the St George Hospital Emergency Department. Wow. A 15% reduction in police mental health events involving um, emergency departments, an 8% reduction in mental health presentations via an ambulance, and 12% reduction in Section 22, which is when you know, a police officer can actually write you up and in as a Section 22, you're scheduled to a mental health facility. So it's um, made a big difference. It's made a huge difference, you know, and the clinicians get to, you know, provide guidance and knowledge and, as I said, in real time when they're most vulnerable. So whilst I'd like to see more and more mental health education for the police department they are active in what they're doing and you know it's having that face-to-face with you know someone who's trained in mental health it just reduces the trauma for everyone at the at the time you know so it's definitely working we're loving that it, it's out there in the in the in the uh, community you know it's certainly making a difference Penny Holbrook is my guest today, and we are talking today about mental health. And Penny, I wanted to add a couple of things here. I've had my own personal experiences with anxiety and mental health, and it's very scary when you feel that you're the only person in the world that is going through this, that you feel that you're not human, that you feel that you're not normal. And Mm. when we were younger, and I'm a little bit older than you again, but through my journey of the 1970s when I was a teenager and my early 20s, I was told by my mother that you never spoke about this, that you never told anyone you were anxious, that if you Mm. told people you would never get a job, everything then gets suppressed and knotted up inside you, which makes it even worse. And it erodes away at your self-esteem. You're not living the life that you deserve. You're really only just going through the motions of living. You're not really enjoying it. So I can't imagine for you what it was like that you got to the point where you wanted to take your own life. So, yeah. Penny, after surviving a, an attempt on your life, what's your newfound purpose? My oh, My purpose is to live each day to the fullest, be as happy as I possibly can, to make other people as happy as they can, um, to practice wellness and kindness on a daily basis. So, hmm. And are you finding that it's difficult to be happy? Look, it, <laughs> in the world we're living in at the moment with COVID, it has made it a lot harder and the you know the youth of today and all all the adults are obviously finding it really difficult but even just in this lockdown in this lockdown period while COVID's been around us there's been over 4.4 million prescriptions that have been written for mental health 4.4 million prescriptions that's 
astronomical figures. And another, you know, 10.6 was spent on mental health in 2018 and 2019, where we were coming in into that. And I will touch a little bit on just sort of the budget here is the 21-22 budget where they've given us $6.3 million and their five key pillars there are prevention and early intervention, suicide prevention, treatment, supporting the vulnerable and a workforce and government. So they've got a lot to do with, you know, the $6.3 million. So, you know, they, they need to, you know, enhance mental health in, you know, in primary care, look at the units and, and what's available, you know, for like community hubs for, for, you know, kids to go to when, you know, that sort of 17, 15, 16, 17, up to 18 year olds, because a lot of our figures and numbers are, don't even reflect 14 years and under in our suicide rates. So mm. in 2020 alone, just in New South Wales, but we, I don't have 21 because we're not clear, it, it, we're already at 897 yeah. for New South Wales, 780 in Victoria. I know we get the figures every day about how many people have lost their life to COVID, but we don't get the figures on how many people are attempting or losing their life due to the lockdowns, to the loss of financial or to yeah. their income, their jobs. We don't, we don't know that. We're not told that, no. but I'm sure the numbers are huge. Mm. The car accidents, vehicle related, you know, deaths, were as high as the suicide rates in Australia, we would take the cars off the road mm-hmm. because suicides far out, you know, like and I'm not saying that, you know, car accidents aren't as reportable. They certainly are. They're horrific and people have lost lives. But the suicide rate, we would. They'd go, this is not great. We need to take the cars off the road. If we take the cars off the road, we'll reduce the rate of fatalities. So if we do something about our mental health, and, and as I said, how we do it, like just even in March and April, the calls that came into Lifeline, and I'm just rounding these off, were 81,000 calls yeah. in a month. To the kids' helpline, it was 25,000. Yeah. And to Beyond Blue, 22,000. You know, the budget and things like that put extra callers. It gives us, you know, it gives people and establishments like Lifeline the money to train people. You know, so they can be there at the end of the phone, you know, when someone rings in. And, you know, if you're struggling right now, call Lifeline on 131114. Uh, just repeat that for the viewers, 131114, and, and reach out and speak to someone so that uh, there's always someone at the end of the line there yeah. that can lead yes. you where you need to go. My guest in the studio today is Penny Holbrook. And, Penny, before we go today, I asked you for some takeaways, not a doggy bag, but some takeaways. <laughs> Can I have some takeaways for the day, please, I'll, for the I'll, listeners? I'll have honey prawns and lemon chicken, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, love it. Can I have, can I have some takeaways, please? <laughs> yep. What's the first thing they need to do if they're struggling? The first thing they need to do is to actually pick up that phone. That's the first thing, is to connect with someone, you know, whether it's a friend or a professional, you know, like Lifeline or Beyond Blue. That's really the first thing. Or or just, you know, just try and connect with someone and, and explain how you're feeling or what you're thinking. 
so that perhaps another person might be able to just pick up on something and go, yeah, I, you know, I heard them say something the other day and that really concerned me. I'm yeah. wondering if I should do anything about it, you know. Um, I always ask a direct question to someone. You know, if I might say to you, Karen, how are you feeling? And you go, fine. I'll go, mm, that old fine word. We know what that means. Yeah. But I will actually, if you, you know, once I, we're through, during a conversation, um, I actually then would pick up and go, you know, I really don't think that they're traveling that well. I will actually, and this is taught in the mental health first aid, is to actually ask the question direct. Are you, are, are you feeling suicidal? Are you thinking of killing yourself? And some people think, oh my goodness, that, that, that's a pretty strong, you know, words to come out with. But in terms of mental health training, that's how we do it. Yeah. So we ask the question. And then after you've asked the question, what's the next thing you do? So that depends on the answer. And you've got to be really prepared to listen to the answer. So if they are saying, yes, I'm thinking of suicide, my next question is, have you made a plan? Have you written up? Have you thought about how you'd want to do it? And depending upon that answer, you know, maybe, yes, I have. Let's just say it's a yes all the way along. So, yes, I have thought about killing myself. Yes, I am planning it. Yes, I've written a plan or I've thought about it. This is how I'm going to do it. And I am then going to then call triple zero because they seriously need help right there because I might not be able to physically stop them on my own if it was just myself. Mm-hmm. If we were in a, a group of people, which sometimes we are with another lady that I do volunteering with, you know, one of us would, would call triple O um, or, uh, you know, if we've got another phone and it is via a phone call, we'll, we'll ring the police and they'll do a triangulation and pick up where that phone call is actually coming from and they will send a car there directly. So if they say no, you know, I'm just feeling down, you know, you know, I'm worried about my job or I'm worried about, you know, um, the kids at the moment, you know, I'm just feeling, you know, a little bit trapped, you know, then we handle it in a, in a different way, you know. So it really just does depend on that answer. So, you know, they just might need some support by, you know, going around um, and sitting with them and having, you know, having that cup of coffee with them and, and just saying, you know, things about at work and my work numbers have yeah. been cut down or, or, and then giving suggestions about how we could, even, and even today's times, you know, it might be just something like, um, you know, trying to help them with information or help them fill out, you know, a form, yeah. you know, for Centrelink or a form for their workplace or, yeah. you know, they not, might not be familiar with filling out an application for a job. So, you know, you go around there and just offer that support. So first of all, you've um, asked, are they okay? You've listened. You've checked their safety. Yeah. So that's where I'm saying, yeah, where where are you at? You know, like, are you and feeling you, suicidal? You've you get help, as in you've either called triple O or someone yep. that can actually help. Yep. Then number five, you've got follow up. Yep. So I really found that from my own experience, what they even need to work on today is the appropriate health help after an attempted suicide. Like I, I looked in terms of follow-up from uh, any of the establishments that I were like from Royal North Shore Hospital or um, where I went into at the Hills Private. So once I left there, that was it. You know, there was no follow-up. 
from private rehabilitation centres that I've been in, there's maybe, you know, a phone call or you can do a, a three-day a three, three day course for the week or something. But then it just stops quite suddenly. So I don't think that there's enough follow-up. And, you know, you really do need that help in navigating the, the mental health path of what you do next after you've come home from, you know, a stint in rehab or a stint in, you know, in a hospital or, you know, or a, a lockdown mental health, you know, facility. And what I want to see from that, especially moving forward for my ultimate goal to, to, to sort of finish up what I would really like is an, the, an education system within our schools, just like they teach maths, English, science, we really need a program in schools that, can, you know, you can start from, you can start from kindergarten in a very nurturing way of how we're friendly and kind to the person beside us, even when we're five and six, up to, you know, in, in our workplace um, and, you know, making a program specifically for the age group, for a primary, you know, primary school age and then a high school age. Yeah. Um, that's appropriate of how we treat people. You know, like, you know, Dolly's law about, you know, bullying came in. Well, let's teach life skills in, yes. in school, not just maths, English, science, trigonometry, et cetera. So we need life skills yes. because people hide behind, you know, I, I as I said, I, I, I will MC and speak for another company and the, every year it's called behind a smile. And we can put this really big smile on our face, but inside, I'm not smiling. Yeah. These kids aren't smiling. No. And one of the points you've also made here is just taking care of yourself, you know. Mm. And, and I think that's it's ultimately our own responsibility to take care of ourselves. But there are people, the community is out there for, to support you. We're very much, we need community. We're social beings and we mm. need support mm. from other people. You're not on your own. Taking care of yourself is your responsibility, but you're not on your own. Mm. Mm. And the wider circle we have of people that can check in on us and prevent another attempt happening is highly important, yeah. you know. You can't just be swept under the rug and go, yes, she's well again, I've signed off on her, you know, because something tragic may happen again and you could completely flip and next thing you're back there, you know. But, yes. you know, as, as the more the additional, you know, the more additional mental health we've got, the treatments that we've got, and the other huge problem that we've got is that, we haven't got enough public facilities, you know. I was lucky that I was in a private health fund to be able to go to the places that I've been to. But they they shut more and more public health units and there is nowhere to go. So these people are now living on the street. They're not getting the help that they, they need mentally. They're, they're, not getting, they're not getting well. They're yeah. getting worse. Yes. So, you know, the government needs to put the money into you know, private uh, health facilities where people can have an inpatient program because they don't have the money. A few minutes ago, you talked about happiness. I, I was reading or I was listening to a podcast the other day and the acronym GEM was a practice that this particular person had, G being gratitude, E being empathy, 
and M being mindfulness. And this particular person said, the happiest people around were those that practiced kindness. Mm-hmm. But actually being kind helps you to build happiness within yourself. And, it, you know, it's not that hard to be kind, mm-hmm. little acts of kindness, a kind mm-hmm. word, you know, a little bit of help to a neighbour or to a friend, to someone in need. You know, even just doesn't have to be someone in need. Just be mm-hmm. kind. Mm-hmm. Penny, you do talks in school, is that correct? Not in school, so generally um, at larger functions. Yeah, so for as I said, my girlfriend's got a company um, called um, Raising Growth, so I'll often MC for her or special guests. Um, I talk on Radio Blue Mountains for the Men's Mental Health Show that Brad Spillane yes. runs. So yes. I go up there um, probably three or four times a year. Yes. And speak on the radio up there, which I absolutely love. It also gives me a little bit of time out, a couple of days away to get out of Sydney. And that's sort of like my refresh card as well. So sometimes, you know, I need to ground myself and give myself the love, the kindness and the happiness that I that I give to everybody else. Because sometimes I can feel a little bit absorbed by everybody else. Um, so for me to be able to give that, it's like if you don't look after yourself, you can't look after anyone else, you know. It's just like mum's at the ready, you know. So um, so I take those moments, you know, I take a few days out, um, probably every sort of three or four months and recharge, what I say, recharge my own batteries, and that gives me the strength to help provide strength and guidance and help and kindness and love to other people. Well, Penny, you are truly amazing and you are a survivor and Thank you for coming and sharing on the Aging Fearlessly program and mental health health issues, you know, run through all age groups. And it's important to understand that there is help, that you don't hold it all in and attempt self-harm. But Penny, what mm. is your – you have a website? Um, no, I don't, actually. Oh, you I've don't just... have a website. Facebook, do they find you under Penny Holbrook? Holbrook? They they certainly can. So if you would like to reach out, yeah, a photo of me at the top and a lovely, beautiful blue waterfall at the back. Um, so you can just look under Penny Holbrook on Facebook or Instagram and I will be there. Yep. Well, Penny, thank you so much for today. And I'll look forward to meeting you in person at some stage and not over Zoom when COVID no. ends. Uh, look, yeah, it's a very good. important story that you share today. Um, especially in depth. It's a very brave story to share in depth your journey to actually attempting suicide and your survival. Uh, And for that, I truly thank you. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure to to speak with you today, Karen, and I hope that everyone is listening, um, you know, feels that they can reach out and get help. Um, I'm always, you know, um, send me a friend request. If you want to speak to me through Messenger, I'm always happy. I, you know, I love taking on new people and just being there at the end of the line if they need someone just to talk to. And again, can you give the lifeline number, please, Penny? Certainly. The lifeline number is 131114. So if you're feeling at all that you're in need, the number is there. So cheerio from me this week. Um, have a good week. Talk soon. So this is it for today's program. It's time to say cheerio to the wonderful Northern Beaches community. 
Join me next week for another episode of Aging Fearlessly. And now for a song written by Nick Howard, especially for the listeners. This is Karen Sander. Have a fantastic week. And remember, aging is inevitable and growing old is a choice. The sun is shining bright outside. There's a sparkle in It's not all nine to five, it's a wonderful life. Let's go and climb mountains high, swim across oceans wide. Live out our dreams, just you and me. Let your heart be alive. There's no time to